0: From the En Institute's Found in Books series, Uncle Books bemoans the obsession of low prices as an outlet. An image of the bookmark under discussion may be seen at our website at enrouteinstitute.com. This has happened to all of us before. We're engrossed in a book, are pulled away by one distraction or another, and scan quickly our immediate surroundings for anything to mark our place in the flow of the text. In this way... Many decisions in and on behalf of our everyday lives are made hastily, unthinkingly, in the service of expediency, and at the lowest possible cost to the flow of our rhythms and routines. Still, as I believe nothing is given to us without purpose, I'm predisposed to there being a certain aura surrounding the marks we later discover in books long abandoned by their original reader, and that they possess a potential symbolic power to catalyze our own stories. Sometimes, as in the earlier episode of the Pickwick Bookmark, Proustian memories came my way involuntarily, unlocking decades of submersion. In the current mark under discussion, from the moment I saw it, I knew it would involve some memory work, some social and economic criticism, and a bit of what we might call impressionistic history. Hard as it may be to imagine such a volume of pontification coming from one little garment tag, here we go. What comes to mind when the phrase outlet mall is mentioned? If it's divisions of minivans invading giant concrete bunkers filled with clothing that should have stayed on the cotton trees, then I'm in line with you. But if it reminds you of low prices, good deals, and great values, please allow me the opportunity to convince you otherwise. Many years ago, textile and clothing companies were taking on large amounts of produced goods that were unsalable due to usually slight mistakes in their manufacture. For example, a stitch could have been missed or a cut might have been irregular. At some point, it occurred to them that perhaps, if they reduced the price of the off-item drastically enough, there might be buyers who would overlook the imperfections, and in so doing, the producers could unload the mistakes without simply dumping them recouping some of their costs in the process, and it became an instant success. By the 1970s, these factory outlets, the textile manufacturer Burlington is a good example, were dotted all over America and became an inexpensive way to own slightly irregular yet quality merchandise at great prices. Ironically, the factory outlets became victims of their own invention, as the demand for these defects outstrip the production of them, since no company wishes to intentionally produce mistakes. And by this time, smaller manufacturers and even retail chains began to organize stores of discounted merchandise in the same locales as these big factory outlets, establishing outlet malls that required ever-larger mountains of stuff to fill them. So how to resolve this weird problem of creating goods that were, by definition, as limited in supply as the producers could make them? Enter the globalized economy. At about the same time, underdeveloped countries began to be able to offer products to U.S. retailers that were significantly lower in cost and dramatically inferior in quality, but resembled the look of mainline products because these overseas entities ran what amounted to a slave labor workforce. If all my competitors have families knitting sweaters for them for free, it's going to be nearly impossible for me to stay in business if I must pay my knitters a living wage. In the beginning, the knockoffs looked only like a ridiculous simulacrum of the original. I recall once noticing Louis Vuitton's famous LV logo hilariously being replaced by a JB. But as their forgeries became more expert, it became clear to American retailers that there could be a market for approximations of full retail, high-demand goods. This could be perhaps excusable for companies that already traded in mediocrity, But the culmination of this game of deception came when top-flight designers and retailers began applying their time-honored reputations, as expressed in their labels or logos, some having taken centuries to perfect, to these imitation high-end commodities. ersatz luxury goods became an irresistible way for the outlet stores to keep their shelves full of cheap merchandise and to resolve the demand problem. Soon, consumers forgot about the reasons why the original defects were good buys in the first place and began the slow, collective psychic transformation toward a fixation on low prices for its sake. Today, special purchase items, the term for the licensed use of products of a lower quality than the reputation of the store or brand, account for up to 90% of the merchandise offered in an outlet store. Notice the change, by the way, in name from factory outlet. And in many cases, the outlet store is more profitable than the originary store from which it hijacks its name. This improvised bookmark is emblematic of how all strata of retail stores have become seduced by the special purchase temptation. The estimable store associated with this label is one of the oldest department stores in America and in its mainline retail shops, offer some of the highest quality merchandise in the world. The item connected to the sales tag never saw the inside of one of their traditional stores. This is revealed in how on the tag the regular price and the sale price are of the same printing. This item never sold for $60, a suggested retail price. The store had no intention of ever selling it for $60, And in all likelihood, the store purchased it for a fraction of the $24.90 sale price so that it would still earn them a profit. Does this marquee specialty store have the right to engage in such unseemly tactics? Legally and economically, of course they do. But I believe that even if they're looking to engage in such deception in order to earn what they might feel is essential revenue, it has the opposite effect in the long run. The merchandise sold by the store under discussion and companies in their echelon of retailing has for centuries been uncompromising in its quality. But doesn't its association with the outlet store, which closely resembles its namesake, now practically as recognizable as the legacy store, do nothing but diminish the status of the mainline shop? Doesn't the reputation of the original store need to remain elevated? need to be identified with quality in order for its name to be worth copying in the first place? Admittedly, quality is a vague term, often seen as the precursor to one lie or another in the dark art of advertising. But to offer an ironic illustration of one way to understand quality, allow me to do some math. I have a pair of brown suede shoes made by Salvatore Ferragamo, which are built using the finest materials and human craftsmanship, and which I purchased in 2008 for about $500. But before accusing me of being a sartorial snob, let me point out the following. They are perhaps the best fitting shoes I have ever owned. I continue to wear these shoes weekly. They still look great, and I get compliments on them constantly. So if you take the original retail price of these shoes and divide by the number of years I've owned them, you arrive at an annual cost of $42 per year. And that's a high number because I estimate these shoes to look great for at least another few years. A prior pair of black leather Ferragamos lasted me 15 years before I lost them. Now please take that $42 and attempt to buy a pair of shoes at any outlet store, or any other store for that matter of your choosing, and my near guarantee is that you'll walk out with misshapen, ill-fitting foot commodities, meant to last maybe not even a year, and certainly only as long as it takes you to forget where and when you bought them, so that you can throw more money at the planned obsolescence machinery. It's a way, among many other examples I could and I eventually will cite, of understanding how buying at the horrifying full retail price can be an investment rather than a waste. And that falling prey to the cult-like mantra that lower prices are always better than higher ones is one of the cardinal cultural mistakes we can make, especially when we make this choice unthinkingly and uncritically, like reaching for the closest item available to mark our place in a book. This little tag-cum-bookmark reveals the sad disparity between what this world-renowned retailer was and now is. But I chose this particular object, more importantly, as an inaugurating symbol for what can be. In future Uncle Books episodes, I will turn from quality as recognized in a well-stocked bookstore or a pair of handmade shoes, and toward an urging us to becoming available to a certain quality of thinking that hopefully complements these literary and material understandings of quality. If the first Uncle Books episode was a melancholic return to lost origins and worlds of beauty found in locality, my tirade against the compulsion to always want more and more for less and less is met as a reminder that, even if we are still far away from retracing the conditions for better quality for our everyday lives, it is possible to mark the culprits not just from the supply of mediocrity, but from the demands of thoughtlessness, which stand in our way from that quixotic ambition. Please check back for more episodes of Uncle Books.